0: Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Trust you're having a good week. Yes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we are in Philippians tonight, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look at, Lord willing, the, f- the first three verses here. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, 1 through 3, and I've entitled this, or titled this, rather, Legalizers versus True Worshipers." And, uh, you know... John MacArthur says Philippians 3 3 is his favorite verse on the definition of saving faith, which is an interesting thing to say. Uh, we'll see why as we get there, but let's uh, open up in a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble. Thank you for all the ongoing ministries, youth group, I wanna pray that you would bless the, the ministry of the word there. Uh, Lord, uh, may it go forth with power and just strengthen the teachers, give them wisdom and. And, uh, Lord, uh, guide and direct them as they seek to guide and direct the the young people of our church. Lord, again, thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we've moved into chapter chapter 3. Theme is joy or rejoicing in the Lord. We're down to uh, chapter 3, rejoicing in Christ, our goal. And uh, we will move to that end as we work through the chapter here. He's been emphasizing unity that is centered in humility. Of course, Christ is the ultimate example. He gives several examples of this in chapter 2. But uh, biblical unity is a huge theme in the New Testament scriptures in terms of how we ought to carry on. Think we ought to get along? Yeah, yeah, we probably should. Uh, I mean, to the glory of God. I mean, you take a motley crew like the body of Christ, and you put those people together, and they get along and love each other as, as they 're supposed to do it 's a beautiful thing to the glory of god this is this is god 's doing so uh, yeah, biblical unity very important but but in the same breath, so is also biblical separation and who do you suppose we should separate from <clears throat> well, in particular huh oh, false teachers, teachers. that 's exactly right that and that will be the emphasis as we get into our study here tonight. Uh, yes, uh, biblical unity does not extend to, to false teachers. And uh, joy, the joy of the Lord is to define us. And really, the joy of the Lord is centered in truth. Uh, I see false teachers as joy robbers. Joy robbers. its all kinds of robbers. But joy robbers are, are some of the worst. And that's what false teachers are all about. Okay, uh, let's have somebody read... Uh, verse 1. It's got three verses. We'll break it up here. Albert? Okay, thank you. He says finally, and uh, you know he's only half done, right? It's four chapters, and we're just the first verse of the third chapter. Uh, Why does he say finally? Well, they say this is evidence that, that Paul is father of all those long-winded pastors. When they're, when they're half done, they say, finally, right? And, uh, you know, why does he say finally here? Well, I don't know for sure. Perhaps it's a, just a transitional. Yes, Vince? <laughs> you know, that, that very well may be. And, in fact, that's one of the things that commentaries bring out, like, Yeah, he was kind of intending to wrap this up with his finally uh, rejoice in the Lord, which is the main theme of the book. But then he's got other thoughts that come and and it's not done after all. And so he carries on for quite some time before he comes to chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 4. So that is maybe not so far off. That might be pretty well it right there. Um, So finally, he says, my brethren. So he's addressing fellow believers Uh, Finally, my my brethren, and uh, he's emphasizing with them joy. And, uh, of course, he's saying rejoice in the Lord. The source of our joy is the Lord. Uh, Circumstances, you know, that can lead you anywhere. They're like the weather up and down all over the place. But the Lord is consistent, and that's where we find our our joy as believers. And by the way, uh, when you think about joy... Uh, the joy of the Lord, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. And um, <clears throat> when you think about apostates, uh, or, or really even just Christians, not even have to go so far as apostates, but apostates are miserable people. Uh, they really are. They're, they're miserable with themselves, and they try to make everybody else miserable. By the way, Christians who are out of step with the Holy Spirit are not very happy either. Uh, you know, the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed until the day of redemption. I think that grieving, when when you're, when you're living in sin as a believer, it's a grievous process. I mean, the Holy Spirit is grieved inside, and I don't think that makes for joy. It it, it crimps the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, he's saying, my, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Um, along with what I was saying here, uh, you know, in Isaiah 57, <clears throat> the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Yeah, no joy, no peace, no rest, no fruit of the Spirit for for these folks. Uh, it's no wonder they're miserable. Uh, they, the key is the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. By the way, there's a mystery tension here again. We talk about these mystery tensions in the Scripture between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, you know, the uh, direction here, uh, the command in effect, is uh, to believers to rejoice in the Lord. Well, I thought it was a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Right, it is. fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Uh, well, how does this work here? Uh, is it uh, what God does or is it something we are responsible for? <laughs> yeah, there's some tension here in terms of uh, human responsibility. Ultimately, certainly, it is the Lord who, who provides the joy. But I think uh, you know, there is some human uh, responsibility in terms of focus. Uh, you can choose to focus on what you have in the Lord. Uh, Paul emphasizes, we saw in chapter 1, an eternal perspective for it to I me mean, to live as Christ, to die as King, all of those things. So I think it gets back to focus uh, focus on the sovereignty of God. Uh, focus on the promises of God, our eternal perspective, uh, what we have in Jesus. Uh, you know, he'll you know, get to this, right? Philippians chapter four. Uh, whatever things are true, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good. Pure, think on these things, so you kind of can choose what you're going to think on, where your mind's going to be, where your focus is going. I think that relates to uh, this joy, this rejoicing in the Lord that He's talking about. Okay. Um we're gonna shift gears, but before we do, anything else. Uh you know, I saw it's uh was really I was saying something about uh <coughs> this weekend also in the First Corinthians fifteen uh, uh, the idea of repetition, how good repetition is, right? And uh, uh you know Paul Paul says it's not a problem for me to write to you again. You know, in the first Corinthians fifteen says probably clip to you playing and said I'm telling you what i already told you. That's right. And, and, that's right and that's the gear that I'm going to shift into right now <laughs> that's right though that's right exactly re- well taken that's exactly the, the same point he's making here so yeah as we continue on here he says for to me to write the same things to you is, is not tedious my translation New King James uh, but for you it is it is safe so again just as you were saying Vince it's, it's repetition is good uh, we need repetition. Why do we need repetition, by the way? Yeah, you know, Deuteronomy is a, a repetition, a repeating of the law. I mean, Deuteronomy is a long book. I mean, how many chapters do we have in Deuteronomy? 34. 34 chapters. And uh, that's a lot of repetition. And one of the things that comes through there is don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. We have a tendency as people to forget. And we can forget some very important things. And so he is saying this is not a problem for him. Uh, it's not a concern, uh, for him to re to repeat this, uh, what this emphasis that he's making here. And, uh, when he says this for, to me, to write the same things to you is not tedious. Um, when would they have heard these things before? Well, that's a good question. It's obvious it's not new material for them because he's saying it's a, it's a repeat, uh, Or maybe when he was there, you know, this is evidently material. He had uh, taught them. This is not a new emphasis coming from the Apostle Paul. Uh, That would seem to be the idea here. So, uh, yeah, we need repetition. We need reinforcement. People need to be grounded in in really in what they already know. Uh, You know, we don't always want to say, well, I got to have something new every time I come to church. After about three times, you're probably not coming back if that's the case here, right? Because there's a lot of things where, you know, it's probably not going to be a whole lot even tonight that's brand new if you're a seasoned Christian. In fact, if you're always coming up with something new, there's a problem there somewhere. Uh, probably trafficking in, in what is novel uh, instead of really uh, teaching the Word of God uh, consistently. But yeah, uh, the truth needs to be underscored. And uh, we tend to be forgetful, sometimes negligent, We need to be reminded. The idea of uh, tedious, uh, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious. That means bothersome or irksome. It does. It doesn't bug me. It's not a problem for me. Paul says to repeat this this emphasis with you. So uh, no problem rehashing this. It's it's important. And he says, uh, but for you it is safe. Uh, It's a safeguard. And uh, so he he wants them to know this and to underscore this. And what is the concern he has? He has a concern about these false teachers who are trying to corrupt the gospel of grace. The message of grace is really the bottom line. And when it comes to the message of the gospel, we really can't be too careful. We have to take a stand there. And so um, notice uh, as we continue on here... people that he's going to be addressing as a category are who we would call Judaizers, right? Judaizers. And Judaizers were, let me put my slide up here. Judaizers were people who claimed to believe in Christ but yet wanted to add the law to Jesus for salvation. And in particular, circumcision. They did not deny Christ, they just wanted to add to him. In other words, they did not think it was faith in Jesus alone that saves, but rather faith in Jesus plus circumcision. This is shown to be a major issue throughout the New Testament. So this becomes uh, the issue here. By the way, Jerusalem Council, first, first council in the church age, uh, Acts chapter 15. What was the issue? Yeah. Judaizer theology coming in, which says, okay, it's great. We, we all believe in Jesus, but we just happen to think you need to keep the law and in a particular emphasizing circumcision there. This was what the Jerusalem Council was all about, that early council in the church age. We see it emphasized all over the place. Um, Galatians, any other place you can think of? Oh, yeah, it's brought out in Romans. We'll, we'll talk about that tonight. Chapter 2, uh, Colossians, Hebrews. I mean, it's really kind of all over the place in the New Testament. It was a, a major issue in the early days of the church. It doesn't get any more serious than this in the mind of Paul. No wonder he's repeating this emphasis for their spiritual well-being. In Philippians 3, Paul makes the issue of justification by faith alone in Christ alone as clear as anywhere else in the New Testament. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, where he shares his testimony. This is one of the places Paul shares his testimony in the New Testament. Very clear. This is the mountain of all mountains to die on. For those who are truly preachers of grace, the Judaizers' error of adding something to faith in Christ for salvation is what characterizes all the cults and essentially all the various facets of errant Christianity, which is another way of saying false Christianity, which is another way of really saying uh, not Christianity, uh, which, uh, to put it bluntly, is not true Christianity at all. And so this becomes a major, major deal. Uh, You know, the ecumenists, they want to emphasize unity. Let's just all get along. And we don't quite think alike, but let's just all get along anyway. You know, the ministerial association, they just keep sending me this stuff. I think after 35 years, they would have got the point. But they don't get the point easily. They continue to invite me all the time. Uh, You know, why would I want to go and be with a bunch of people preaching a different gospel? That's just not... I don't belong there. And uh, I don't have fellowship there. So... um, Let's see here. What we got here is the principle of the matter, Jesus plus. I call the Judaizers Jesus plus people, right? That's who they were. And by way of application, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church, Jesus plus sacraments, plus good works, Jesus plus the Ten Commandments, plus tongues, uh, plus being a good person, etc., uh, the fact is, all these are a type of legalistic Judaizer doctrine that rejects Jesus alone for salvation. And we're talking about for salvation. And adds something additional to the equation. Judaizer doctrine says Jesus plus. That's why I call them Jesus plus people. Grace says Jesus alone. Salvation is by grace alone. And the ultimate demonstration of grace is the cross. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone. Paul now goes on to warn of the false Judaizing teachers in the strongest of terms. I mean, he isn't holding back at all uh, when he gets to addressing this. Uh, This note here. These people are definitely unbelieving false teachers and are not to be confused with the brethren in chapter 1 who are preaching Christ, but with the wrong motives. Uh, These Judaizers are corrupting the message of grace, whereas the brethren, chapter 1, are preaching the proper message. You remember how he says, Christ is preaching that, I do rejoice, even though they're not doing it out of the right motives. They're really wishing Paul would, you know, his ministry would flounder and he'd go away. Uh, But uh, the Judaizers are corrupting the message of grace, whereas the brethren there in chapter 1 are preaching the proper message, but with the wrong attitude. Paul could rejoice in the fact that Christ was properly being preached, even if the motives were wrong. Not that he approved of that. But here the Judaizers twist the message. And Paul has not one good thing to say in reference to these people or their activity. In fact, strong words of condemnation. Okay. Um, all right. That's, chapter, that's verse 1. Any other thoughts here? Yeah. I have ever seen Yeah. No, you haven't. Uh, I dare say you have not. Yeah, yeah, no, they're 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 miserable. They're a miserable lot for sure, and uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, anyone else? All right, let's have somebody read verse two. Anita, I think you had your hand up, right, or, or, or did you? Okay, <laughs> thanks. Okay, what translation are you using? Mine says beware look out to the idea though that's it look out look out look out beware beware three times says beware and uh, again in context we're talking about judaizers it's in the present tense uh, beware watch out for these people and he, he calls them dogs now is that very loving <laughs> beware of dogs why didn't he say cats uh, i digress <laughs> beware of dogs he calls them out as dogs here. Uh, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting to think about this because uh, he's talking about two legged kind of dogs, right? He's not talking four legged dogs, he's talking two legged dogs. And, yes? And dog is the nicer man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, he, he, he gets. Uh, they're kind of. I think you have three descriptions here. And he's kind of starting out here in relationship to their um, their character, their character, and then he'll kind of describe them in terms of their of their conduct, and finally in terms of their creed. And so, yeah, it does build here. But uh, under the law, were dogs clean or unclean? Unclean. Unclean. Now we all know they're clean today, right? I mean, at least your little dog is, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, it doesn't. They're all unclean still, according to, I mean, the Old Testament law, which we're not under the law today. But the fact of the matter is, the dog was uh, specifically stated to be an unclean animal in Deuteronomy twenty-three eighteen. 18. Uh, so dogs in the New Testament were not really fondly appreciated like they are today, uh, commonly. And, and again, I'm not getting down on anybody that has a nice, friendly little pet for a dog. In fact, but I've told my wife, if you die, I'm not getting a dog. Uh, a dog is not going to replace you, so you cannot die. Yeah, I mean <laughs> what 's that? <laughs> well <laughs> again, it, you love your dog that 's fine i 'm not talking about we 're making spiritual application here. So anyway, but in the New Testament times, dogs really did have a bad reputation. Uh, they, they were scavengers generally. They, they ate the garbage out of the streets. Uh, they were just unclean even in that sense. They, they ran in packs, packs of dogs generally, and uh, they were dangerous. And by the way, when you have a description of a dog in, in the Old Testament in Proverbs as well as in the New Testament in Peter, it's not a very clean kind of situation, right? A dog returns to its vomit. I mean, I, 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 know, I know we love our little poochies, but they're unclean. And that's what we're really describing here uh, spiritually. That's the idea. It's describing their their unclean character. That's what he's describing. That's why he's calling them out in this way. And by the way, uh, it's not just Paul. You get to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You get to the end of the book, the last chapter of the book. And who's not allowed to go into the New Jerusalem? Who's not going to be there? Outside are dogs. Again, it's not talking... About the four-legged... He's talking about the character of certain people that are unclean. Never been washed from their sins. They're they're filthy in their character is the idea. And so he says, beware of dogs. And uh, we're going to see more about who he's talking about here. Uh, Beware of evil workers. What was yours, Anita? Beware of evil doers, evil workers. Again, conduct is the idea here. Uh, They're evil workers. Um, Before I get there, my next slide here. Isaiah 56 speaks of false prophets as dogs. The irony is that the religious Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, right? That was a common designation of the Gentile Gentile dogs. They considered themselves to be clean, of course, the Jews generally did, but Gentiles to be unclean like dogs, for which they had nothing but contempt. But Paul now turns us around and says of these religious Jews, uh, these Judaizers, that they, in reality, are spiritual dogs. Talk about a put-down. Spiritually speaking, this is a smackdown. Paul was a very tactful person, but when it came to the Judaizers, he told it bluntly. This language was offensive in his day. Still is today. I do not recommend you walk up to people and just say, you're a dog. (laughs) Not a good idea. I mean, if you like eating with your teeth, maybe. It's not a good idea to do that. But... uh, He continues, beware of evil workers. Again, uh, the word workers is the word here, the Greek word from which we get our English word, energy. And it would seem that these people are very energetic. They're very full of zeal. They're very aggressive, as false teachers tend to be. A lot of times, they're the hardest working people around. I mean, they're knocking on doors like crazy. Right? Absolutely. So, uh, evil workers... Uh, and they often think they're doing good. The irony is that these people generally think they're good people doing good religious things. Typically, they're involved in uh, external uh, ritualistic, ceremonial religion, and see themselves as doing good, pleasing God. Paul saw them as evil workers. Yeah, they're working. They're working. They claim they're serving God, too. Previous to his conversion, Paul was a proud Pharisee advancing the cause of Judaism above and beyond his contemporaries. And he'll get, we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. However, upon his conversion, note his change of perspective. It's, it's, you know, all those things, he says, I now count uh, as loss. They, they meant nothing, they, were, they didn't count for any good thing whatsoever. So uh, beware of dogs. Those with, uh, you know, uh, they're unclean spiritually, they're not saved. These are not saved people. Outsider dogs, uh, outside the holy city. Beware of evil workers. And beware of the mutilation. We might call this again their creed. This uh, word mutilation is very closely related to the word circumcision. But it's not the word circumcision. It's closely related. Circumcision means to cut around. This word mutilation means to cut up. To cut up. Mutilate, right? Mutilate. And so, uh, again, here we have uh, the cutters. Paul purposely chose this word to make a point. These Judaizers emphasized the outward ritual of circumcision, but completely missed the point of it. This, in effect, denotes their creed. Uh, They were the cutters. Uh, They held to salvation through Jesus, plus cutting. Uh, They were the mutilation party. Uh, Again, uh, Paul's making a point here as they're wanting to tie circumcision in for salvation. Now, circumcision was ordained of God. Was circumcision a bad thing? No. No, not unless you make it a requirement for salvation. Right, exactly. And it was ordained of God. And back in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, what did it signify? It signified covenant. You were a part of the covenant people. And so it signified we are the covenant people of God. So, so it had a, a very significant meaning, uh, but they really kind of missed the point. Circumcision was ordained of God to be an outward sign for the people of faith, showing that they were in covenant relationship with God, uh, the descendants of Abraham, the physical blood descendants, uh, through Isaac and Jacob. It was to be an outward sign of an inward reality, and there's the issue. It was to be an outward sign of an inward reality, However, the Judaizers came to put all their faith in the outward sign. They thought circumcision saved them and missed the point that it was only an outward sign. Without the inward reality of heart circumcision, that is faith, the outward sign was simply a mutilation of the, f- of the flesh. This word was actually used in the Old Testament Septuagint in referring to the mutilation inflicted in the worship of Baal or other idolatrous practices. And, and note the references uh, to that end there. So, uh, mutilation. Mutilation. By the way, uh, Abraham, the great example of faith in in the scriptures. Romans chapter 4. Did Abraham become a believer before or after he was circumcised? Yes, before. Uh, In fact, this is Paul's major argument in Romans chapter 4 to show Abraham was justified by faith alone, independent of circumcision. Uh, justified by faith. Later he was circumcised. So that becomes a a major part of Paul's argument. Okay, Um, a few more slides here. God repeatedly told the Jews in the Old Testament that the real issue was their heart. That is circumcision of the heart. I mean, he said that. In which their hearts were cut, convicted and humbled in repentant faith. Look at all these references. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In the New Testament, true believers are described as having a circumcision of the heart. So strongly does Paul feel about this issue that in Galatians 5.12, he says, I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And so he's, uh, you know, really speaking in very blunt terms. In fact, he's saying, I wish they wouldn't just circumcise themselves. I wish they would actually castrate themselves. That's really what he said. Well, this a strong language, isn't it? From, I'm coming from our man who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as far as a human instrument. I mean, that chapter on love. I mean, when, I tell you, Paul, Paul was very gracious, even with people who had personal issues with him, like we saw in chapter 1. But when it came to the gospel, he was a tiger. I mean, he, he wasn't messing around with this. Uh, the word used in Galatians 5.12 is an even stronger word, meaning emasculate. Uh, In other words, Paul is sarcastically saying if they are so into cutting themselves, thinking it makes them spiritual, then why don't they go all the way and castrate themselves? Really, that's what he's saying. I mean, being pretty blunt about it, frankly. By way of application, baptism is in many ways similar to circumcision. Is there any type of theology that makes a very corresponding connection here between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament? What, what is that theology? We call it covenant theology. One people of God down through the history of the world. You know, you got physical Israel, you got spiritual Israel. It's, it's wrong teaching. But there's there's a lot of people that teach this. And so they just see, you know, well, they had circumcision in the Old Testament and it corresponds, a direct correspondence to baptism in the New Testament. Problems. Uh, And there are some similarities, it's true. It it too is an outward symbol, but does not save. Because of this similarity, many have made the mistake of seeing water baptism as the New Testament equivalent to circumcision. However, there are significant differences. Uh, Can you think of a difference, by the way? Well, again, we baptize women as well as men. In the Old Testament, when it came to circumcision, obviously we're talking only a male concept. So, however, there are significant differences as well. But both are an outward sign of inward reality. That's true. Just as in the case of circumcision, to put your trust in a ritual, whether circumcision or baptism, is to hold to a false gospel. It's not Jesus plus circumcision that saves, and it's not Jesus plus baptism that saves. It's just Jesus alone. It's faith alone. In Jesus alone that saves. And yet today, multitudes of professing Christians practice some form of baptismal regeneration, which in effect is the same old error as that of the Judaizers. Uh, This is a really big deal. Few really want to take this stand that I am presenting to you tonight, but I think it's very consistent theology. Uh, You don't add anything to Jesus. Uh, It doesn't matter what it is. Um... One more slide before I move on here. Don't misunderstand. Circumcision in the Old Testament was important as a sign. Moses was negligent in circumcising his son, and God nearly killed him. Likewise, in the New Testament, baptism is an important outward testimony as a sign of identification that follows faith. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command that we are to obey after we believe. We believe and are saved, period. Nothing more is needed for salvation, However, if we truly believe, then we are commanded to outwardly identify with Christ in baptism. Belief alone changes our state, but baptism states our change. If you are a true believer, then you have eternal life. The next step for you is to be baptized. This is what the Lord would have you to do. So I don't want you to misunderstand as if I'm saying, well, you know, therefore baptism is insignificant. It isn't. But in terms of salvation, it has nothing to do with saving your soul. It's a testimony that you've been saved by the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses from all sin. Okay, so we have this triple emphasis. Beware, beware, beware. Or as some translations have it, watch out. Watch out. Watch out for these people. Uh, Why do you have to watch out for these people, do you suppose? Well, that's true. And they're dangerous. Why are they so dangerous? Yeah they have a lot of things in common with us, right? They too are teaching Jesus. The Judaizers were very much, oh yeah, we're teaching Jesus too. And so they become dangerous in that sense. Uh, By the way, man, just give me one little second here, would you? I got a phone call coming in. I'm just kidding. Uh, But this is everywhere. You know, I have these guys that I do a text ministry with. I send them a question out of John every day and they answer and, and, you know, it's a really great study, but sometimes I have to correct them. And today was one of those days. One of the guys said, uh, you know, we have to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and then he says, we have to do our best. We have to accept Christ as Lord and Savior and do our best. Well, I picked up on that. I said, uh, about doing our best, uh, a little qualifier. I try to be gracious, you know, when you're having to correct somebody that's flat wrong. Uh, And uh, I said, It's important to note that this is the fruit of true faith, but not the means of salvation. We're not saved by our works, but rather by the finished cross work of Christ alone. That is what the Bible calls grace. Uh, We often refer to grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, indeed, if our faith is real, if if Christ is really our Lord, that is our God, Master, and Savior, then that will be a life-changing reality. But faith is the root. Works are the fruit. Uh, I couldn't let that slide because of things like here. Uh when it comes to the gospel of grace, uh we, we, we got we can't just let that slide. Okay, uh last verse or any other thoughts before we go on to the last verse. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, circumcision identifies the Jewish people as a common people. Right? And uh we believers are a new common people. And what identifies us is the syllable of the Holy Spirit. You know, thus. That's right. That's right. And you know how Christ talks about uh, His blood establish this new covenant. Yeah, the, seal, the Holy Spirit is the seal. But in baptism, we are identifying with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's ab- absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, somebody want to read for us verse 3? Yeah. John? Okay, there's a real play on words here by, by Paul. And he says, uh, you know, he's just been kind of hammering these guys for mutilation, for claiming that circumcision has anything to do with salvation. And then he turns right around and says, we are the circumcision. What in the world does he mean by this? Uh, in contrast to the mutilators, he says, we are the circumcision." Now, you understand, in the Old Testament, shorthand for the Jews, shorthand for those in covenant relationship with God, is they were often called just the circumcision, right? It's it's what defined them. It was the outward sign that they were the covenant people of God. And so, really what Paul is saying here, when he says, we are the circumcision, he is really saying, we are the covenant people of God this is what this is what he's saying. we are the true covenant people of God spiritually speaking we are the circumcision spiritually speaking and we know he's talking spiritually because it goes on how he goes to define it here uh, spiritually speaking and we see this romans chapter 2, 28, 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh so Paul is saying, you know, there, there's an inward reality related to circumcision. And that's what he's really talking about. It's not about outward. He says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. That's where it all starts. Relationship with God begins inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So this is the circumcision he's really talking about. We, we are the true circumcision. We are the spiritual circumcision. Those have had a, a, a spiritual operation on our hearts. Uh, our hearts have been rent. Our hearts have been cut. Uh, we've come under conviction and we've responded uh, to the gospel. So he says, we are the circumcision. In other words, we are the true covenant people of God who have the true mark of covenant reality in our lives. And then he gives three defining marks that relate to this spiritual circumcision. We are the circumcision, what defines us as the spiritual circumcised people of God, who worship God in the spirit. Worship God in the spirit. Uh, This is is one of the key uh, qualifying markers. Has nothing to do with physical circumcision, again. Has nothing to do with a uh, religious ritual. Uh, This is about worshiping God in the spirit. Uh, you know, Jesus in an evangelistic context in John chapter 4 came across this Samaritan woman. And what did he say to her? Uh, she kind of wanted to talk religion. And he, what did he say? Well, uh, here's, what, here's what he said. John chapter 4. The hour is coming, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, those who worship Him must worship Him in, in spirit and in truth. So what is the Father looking for? As Jesus is is talking to this lost Samaritan woman. This is is evangelistic talk. Uh, He's he's witnessing to her. This is evangelism. And uh, he is saying God is looking for true worshipers. Now Paul says the true circumcision, spiritually speaking, are those who worship in the Spirit. And uh, to become a true believer is to become a true worshiper. I would contend that the first act of worship that one ever does is saving faith. Saving faith is itself an act of worship. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think it's an act of worship. Uh, you're recognizing God for who he is in, in saving faith. And so it really is an act of worship. Uh, let's see here. i got another slide. The Greek word for worship is laturo, which, you know, it's sacred service. <clears throat> That's the word used here. But the emphasis here relates to the Spirit. So it means to serve God in your soul, heart. It denotes an attitude of desiring to render reverent spiritual service to God. The attitude, Spirit, is in view, and that permeates every aspect of the person's life. True believers, the circumcision, truly desire to serve God in their hearts. Uh, spirit here could refer either to the Holy Spirit or to the person's Spirit, regardless of which view is taken. Both concepts are true, and both are involved in true worship. However, the contrast of the verse is between spirit and flesh. In the overall context, that's the, that's the contrast. And so probably the human spirit is in view here. Uh, probably. So, uh, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Well, it's, a, it's a heart thing. And uh, he says, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Uh, what's your say, Anita? ESV. Glory or boast in is the idea here. Uh, rejoice in. To boast in. To glory in. To exalt in. And uh, notice what we're, what we're bragging on. What we're glorying in. It's not in anything that we do. It's in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus. Uh, we don't brag on self. We don't brag on what we've done. We, we brag on Jesus and, and, w- and what he has done. Uh, he's everything to us. You know, Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter six, God forbid that I should boast, except there is a place for boasting. Get, get your bragger going. Uh, what are we boasting in? God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our, Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, and just to make very clear, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. That doesn't make any difference, but a new creation. And, and what's that based on? Well, this finished cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're bragging on. And so he says, the true circumcision, those who truly bear the mark of, of being the covenant people of God are those who worship God In the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. This is what it's all about for us as believers. If you talk to a believer about their salvation, the focus will be upon Christ, not on their baptism, sacraments, confirmation, or church membership. None of these things have anything to do with salvation. Nothing. Those who truly belong to God are those who glory in Christ Jesus alone. that's, That's what it's all about for us. The person of Christ and the cross of Christ. Uh, Paul said to those Corinthians, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what it's all about. Uh, We rejoice, we boast in Christ Jesus. And then, just to be very clear, and have no confidence in the flesh. Boy, that drives the the point home very deeply. Notice he didn't say, we kind of minimize the flesh. Nope, nope, nope. He didn't say that. No confidence in the flesh. What does he mean by flesh? Well, flesh is used by Paul in a variety of ways, but here he uses it in a very broad way to indicate anything related to human accomplishment, honor, and ability. The flesh has no capacity to make us right with God in any way. We can't do it. True believers realize this and have no confidence in the flesh. The believer's faith is fully in Christ and not in self or self-effort. What Paul has in mind is very clear because he goes on to say in verse 4 that If it was on the basis of the flesh, he could have confidence. I mean, he's still kind of saying, you know, whatever you guys have done, I've outstripped you all. Uh, He he was so zealous in his religion. But now, he then goes on to list a host of credentials related to ritual, race, religion, zeal, etc. None of which can make a person right with God. And and that's his point in context there. Okay, Uh, let's see here. For those who have confidence in the flesh, it's all about what they do. For those who have no confidence in the flesh, it's all about Jesus. Remember, he just said that, rejoicing in Christ. A little confidence in the flesh cancels out faith in Jesus. You either have all your faith in Jesus or you don't have true faith. To trust in Jesus is to have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, I'm not trusting my ability, uh, whatever it is, to have some confidence in the flesh means a person is not really trusting in Jesus at all. Confidence is a way of expressing faith. That's what I'm trusting and what I'm relying on. And saving faith rests in Jesus alone. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. If anyone is depending on a little religion to help them on to God, to save them, they're not really trusting Christ. Trust, uh, or saving trust, belief, uh, faith is an exclusive thing. It's in Christ alone. And just to show you that this is true, I emphasize it, in Romans 4, Paul says, "...now to him who works..." Wages are not counted as as grace. So works uh, is uh, the opposite of grace. And then he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Uh, Whose faith is it that will uh, be accounted for righteousness? Well, it's a person who is believing and not working. If you're working... Don't put yourself in this category. Uh, The person who does not work but believes this person's faith is accounted for righteousness. No confidence in the flesh. I'm I'm not thinking, well, I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, Dwight, you're a pretty good preacher. I think I'm going to let you in. (laughs) you kidding? I'm going straight to hell if that's what I'm trusting in. Not going to get me in. Anything that we uh, could uh, mention. So, some would argue of the Judaizers, well, at least they say you ought to trust Christ. And they did. This is what makes them so dangerous. We have to watch out for them. Yeah, they claim to be believers in Christ. There's so many of these churches that are what I call Judaizer churches. At least they say you must believe in him as the Messiah. They, they, they agreed with this. At least they agree he is the son of God. Boy, we're on a roll. I think we could have some fellowship with these guys. At least they agree he was raised from the dead. Man, maybe we ought to let him in. I mean, we're in such agreement with these people. The Judaizers agreed with a lot of Christian truth. But in fact, they corrupted the message of grace by adding to Jesus certain elements of the law. So it is with so many today. And that is a damning thing. You know, I I have a pastor friend and uh, people, people say to him, you know, Uh, we agree on so many things. We agree on this. We agree on that. And he'll say, yeah, but the issue is where we disagree. And the ultimate issue is the gospel of grace. If we don't agree on the gospel of grace, I don't care what else we agree on. It's a broken deal. We can't go along with, you're one of those guys we're going to watch out for. Watch out, watch out, watch out. Paul is very emphatic. So we have to, okay, some level of fellowship. Do we agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we agree on the gospel of grace? If we don't agree on that, there's no fellowship at all. If we agree on the gospel, there's other secondary issues that we might call. Okay, we can have some level of fellowship, even if we don't agree on all, everything. But we have to agree on the gospel, uh, the gospel of grace. It's a hill to die on. We can never, there's no wiggle room there. What's whatsoever. All right. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Bill. I'm to think this, this out. It seems to be an, an Yeah. Yeah, I think it all comes back to what are you trusting in to get you there ultimately? You know, um, it's so funny. Luther is such a bag of of, uh, contradictions sometimes. But Luther would put himself in this category. I mean, he's striving and doing all of these things. And the more he tried to do, the more miserable he he, he became. uh, Until he says, hey, it's all Christ. And yet, the irony is, at the end of the day, he did want to try to add baptism in, you know, as far as the issue of infant baptism and all of that. So, it's like I say, it kind of becomes an interesting bundle of a little bit of contradictions. But, yeah, I think the issue becomes, what am I trusting in? Uh, what, in terms of salvation itself, what am I depending on to get me to, to, over to God, to heaven? Because the cross is an all-consuming thing. You know, when I'm on my deathbed, don't talk to me about how good I've been. Let's talk about Jesus. Uh, In fact, one of the songs I've requested, who knows what's going to happen when you die. You know, Pastor Eddie Master's old funeral planned out. Had to change almost half the things because some of the people were dead and the others couldn't find. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I love that song, What Can Wash Away My Sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, yeah. Um, I'm definitely not going to call you a hair take. Definitely not. Someone else? So we wrap up? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, Salvation comes first, and then, of course, God is at work. He has begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He begins to work it out in our life. But, you know, we start as babies. We learn to crawl. We learn to walk. We learn to run. Uh, We start with milk, work up to meat, you know, all of those things related to... That's all sanctification, though. Yeah. We're really talking salvation here. What are we trusting in to to get to heaven? All right. Yes. I was thinking also, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ was a gentle when he dealt with sinners. People said gentle. Yes. Mm. Hmm. Yes. yes and, and yet uh, they were not there right and, uh, and the Lord Jesus have the stronger words you know for the, the Pharisees and the scientists and the scribes and all these people that are religious people yeah so, you know, they have this system mm-hmm. uh, Amen. Amen, brother. So true. Uh, self-righteousness, it seems to me, is exceedingly offensive to God. Uh, religious self-righteousness. I mean, yeah, it's harder on the, the religious leaders than he was on any of those harlots and, and the, even the tax collectors and all, all of these people. Yeah. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Well, appreciate your uh, participation tonight. Let's uh, share some prayer.